Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law and policy. I'm Stephen Murens. This week, Deanna and I are joined by Mikhail Skudered, a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. In the fall of 2021, he co-authored a piece with Ian O'Donnell at Western University titled The Transformation of Canada's Temporary Foreign Worker Program. In today's episode, we discuss many topics around economics and Canadian immigration, including whether Canada economically needs high immigration levels because of low birth rates, whether it is short-sighted from an economic perspective to focus on labor market needs, what role should immigration play in resolving short-term labor shortages, um, what would be the economic consequences if all temporary foreign workers in Canada were to become permanent residents? We also discussed the surprising correlation between an international student's grades while they're in Canada and their economic achievement in Canada after graduating. And how should the comprehensive ranking system and express entry be reweighed or rescored, or what factors should IRCC continue or consider adding? Uh, from an economic perspective based on data on what comprehensive or what human capital factors or other factors may contribute to someone's ability to become economically established. It was a really interesting conversation uh, in an area that we haven't really discussed on the podcast before with someone who knows a lot about economics. Um, Mikhail Skudered can be reached on Twitter at at M-I-K-A-L S-K-U-E-R-U-D. I can be reached by email at steven.meurrens at l-a-r-l-e-e.com. And Deanna can be reached at d-e-a-n-n-a at m-c-c-r-e-a-l-a-w.ca. Once again, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. like a lot of immigration lawyers will often say or stakeholders or sometimes in the media is that Canada needs immigration because our population growth rate based just on I guess Canadians giving birth isn't sufficient to maintain growth so we need immigration and a growing population and that's repeated a lot and I sometimes wonder is that actually true or is there a counter argument <laughs> to that? So I was just wondering, like, is that, um, and certainly in immigration spheres, that's what's said. Is that also said in economic spheres? Yeah, there's a, there's a, a few different ways of thinking about that question, um, tackling it. In, in general, there's no imperative for populate to, to have population growth in order to have a you know a healthy economy, um, there's there's no real relationship between population of a country and the economic well-being of the people in the country. Um, I think that is a mistake we often make when we talk about immigration is that we confuse what the economic objective is. Is it to maximize the total size of the economy, which we usually measure using gross domestic product, GDP, 
the sort of the economic value of everything that's produced in an economy within a year. So is the, is the objective to maximize that? Because in, in, in an, using an analogy, you can think of that as like the total size of the pie. Or is the objective to maximize the average slice of a pie that every individual in the population receives that we call GDP per capita, we're just dividing the total GDP by the number, by, by the population. And I think most people would agree that, that what really matters is, is GDP per capita. That, that's really what determines our economic well-being. There are certainly many countries in the world that are poorer than Canada, India, Brazil, Bangladesh, that, are, um, that have higher total GDP, but much lower GDP per capita. Similarly, there's many smaller countries that have much higher GDP per capita than Canada, um, but much lower total GDP. So, I mean, overall, I, 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 you know, on Twitter sent out charts once in a while that that show if you take every country in the world where we can measure GDP, GDP in their population, which is about 190 countries, and you just look at the raw correlation, the, the raw correlations, if anything, negative. So you know, bigger countries have lower GDP per capita on average. So that, that suggests there's, there's really no clear relationship there. Certainly, if your objective is to increase the economic well-being of the citizens of a country, just trying to increase the population through immigration doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I've always kind of puzzled over this idea, too, that simply bringing in an influx of skilled workers, like really focusing on those knock O, A, and Bs as being like a perfect formula for improving the economic well-being of our labor market, just always seems really short-sighted to me. And it's the same thing like for the, the kind of rationale that goes behind the parents and grandparents, that like parents and grandparents are done working and therefore uh, they don't contribute to the, you know, to the overall revenues because it doesn't really, it doesn't look beyond the, um, you know, the, like, let's say, for example, the people that might come in and care for the kids so that the employers and the family and the Canadian families can go out and improve their income. Like, it just seems very short-sighted too, you know, and I just, I don't know if that's the way that it seems to an economist or whether or not that's strictly my own immigration perspective on things. Yeah, so that, that's one of the sort of the big picture questions about how to do uh, immigration policy and, and, and what the objective should be. So, I mean, first off, I should say, and I, I mean, I have to say this right from the outside, that as soon as we start talking about what good policy and bad immigration policy is, um, we've, we have to be very, very clear about what the objective is. And immigration policy in Canada has many objectives. Um, there are humanitarian objectives, there are family reunification objectives, there are sort of nation building objectives, and there are economic objectives. And I think economic objectives, mostly if we're forced to sort of say, well, what exactly is that economic objective? I think it is about raising average living standards and of, including the people in the existing population, not, not just the, the new immigrants, um, to raise GDP per capita. And that's something I, I know something about, certainly much more than I know about any of the other objectives. So I tend to focus on that, but that's not because I think it's more important. In fact, I've been pretty vocal that I think our obsession with economic objectives has sort of crowded out the discourse around other objectives. And I, I think that's a problem in Canada, actually, and quite a serious one. But nonetheless, I'm an economist, so I think a lot about whether how, how can we leverage immigration to raise GDP per capita? How is that possible? 
So and do you think that's, that's the goal? Like when they say, like, cause there's the whole, I mean, economics ties into it because Canada's largest immigration category are called economic immigrants. And like, as you were mentioning, the goal, like one of the goals is to raise uh, GDP per capita. Is there a way to actually measure whether an economic, an individual economic immigrant or economic immigrants collectively are increasing GDP per capita? So they, for sure, the absolute simplest way, I mean, there's more and less difficult ways to gauge to what extent immigration is raising GDP per capita. But the simplest way, and, and what really is a focus of IRCC and, and a lot of the research that's done by labor economists like me that study Canadian immigration, is to recognize that roughly two thirds of GDP in Canada are labor market earnings um, comprised of the, or, you know, captured in the, in, you know, the GDP is the value of everything that's created and the value yeah. of everything that's created, a big part of it is reflected in, in, in people's earnings. And so, you know, here's, a, here's an analogy. If, you, if you've got a basketball team and the basketball team has an average height of six foot eight and you wanna increase the average height of the team, how do you do that? Well, when you add a player to the team, you want to make sure that their height is higher than the existing average. If they're taller than the existing average, it's going to pull up the average height of the team. If their height is below the existing average, it's going to pull down the average. Really not that different. If GDP per capita is sort of the, in large part, average earnings of people in the Canadian population, if you want to raise the average, you've got to bring in people whose earnings are above the existing average. That pulls up average earnings, that pulls up GDP per capita. And so a really important metric that we focus on is what are the earnings of, of new immigrants? And that has received a lot, of, I would say more than any other immigrant receiving country in the world, we have just a, a, a ton of research over the years that examines what is what are the earnings of, of new immigrants to Canada? How's that changing over time? And how do selection policies influence, to some extent, settlement policies? But there's settlement policies as well. But there's much less research on that. Much more on what how do, how do settlement policies affect the average earnings? And and there we've seen some really big policy changes in the past two decades in Canada that um, have clearly had an impact on that have in, 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 a, in a beneficial way. You know, some really significant policy reforms that have, have improved the, the so earnings of new what, what would those be? Well, so uh, th this happened, you know, beginning with IRPA in, in 2002, there, there was, you know, coming back to the big picture question that, that Deanna raised is, you know, should we target current labor market needs? Should that be the, the kind of the key mechanism to ensure that when immigrants arrive, they hit the ground running and, and get a job there, there's a job there for them. So do we target current labor market needs by looking at what occupations are in demand, where there are labor shortages, and then just giving uh, preference to applicants who are who, who have work experience in those occupations. That's one approach. The other approach is to say, well, let, let's not try to you know hit labor market needs. Let, let's just say let's 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 give preference to immigrants with high levels of human capital. Um, and there's a lot of research that that compares the, the relative performance of these two approaches. And I think overwhelmingly, in fact, I would say there's a consensus among labor economists that. The former approach of the, what's called a human capital model is is the preferred approach, and and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, the two biggest ones are are the following. We could talk about this because this is like you know like a big area of research. But the two biggest, I think, most compelling reasons are 
One, that trying to predict labor market needs is essentially impossible. You know, like in the short term, maybe, but one year, two years in the future, we can't predict these lately, what, what, how economies shift. These are called structural changes in economies, reallocations from some occupations. I mean, COVID has had this impact. There's been significant reallocation of the types of jobs people do, types of jobs that are in demand. I mean, we could never predict, predicted that five years ago. So what happened in the late 90s, for example, is we saw this massive growth in the ICT sector. Nortel was booming, Corel was booming. We, we deliberately brought in a huge number of immigrants that were employed and that had education work experience in the se sector. And then what happened in early 2002, in about 2002, dot-com bubble, the whole thing crashed. And that left a big scarring effect on, on a huge number of cohorts of those late 90s cohorts of immigrants and those with those uh, software engineering skills and so on. So the other reason, so that's the number one reason, trying to predict these current, these labor market needs and stuff. The other way though is, and I think this is the most significant thing that how economists think about economies differently than, than non-economists do, is that the types of jobs that are in demand are what we say endogenous. So they are a function of the labor supply. Non-economists tend to think about the jobs that are, the job slots that are available, what jobs are needed, just sort of get handed down to us from heaven. They come from, they're exogenous, they come from outside the system. But that's not true. We know for sure that the types of jobs that are available are largely determined by the types of people that are available to work. And, and so if you want an economy that's very highly skilled, high GDP per capita, then you need workers that are highly skilled. If you wanted a low-wage economy where you can get people to do unskilled jobs at low, very low wages, if that's your objective, then you should bring in a lot of low-skilled immigrants. So, I mean, you can see even the types of ways, like if you go to Florida and you want your car washed, I will challenge you to go find a, a, an automatic car machine that does that, like a car wash machine. You won't find one. You get your car washed in Florida, you pull into a parking lot and you get five people washing their hand, your car by hand. We don't do that in Canada, even in the summertime when it's warming up. Why? It's too expensive to hire five people to wash a car by hand. And so it changes the types of, another great example is the wine industry, how grapes are harvested in, in the wine industry in California versus Australia. And also during the pandemic in Italy, they've shifted towards more automation of, of wine harvesting or grape harvesting in, in the wine industry. So the, the types of jobs we do are largely determined by the flow. And so the, the objective we've said in Canada, this, this is very much a part of IRPA in uh, our immigration legislation is to say the objective should be to maximize the human capital of immigrants. That determines what types of jobs we have. We, we get a high human capital economy with high wages and high, high uh, GDP per capita. And so where would that leave? Like one of the a question that we got asked uh, when we said that we were doing an economics podcast where the businesses that were, sorry, the question was from a few people, what role should economics play in resolving these short-term labor shortages, right? Like, so if a restaurant somewhere can't hire workers, or as you said, like the car wash that can't afford to fully automate should immigration play a role in just providing a either temporary or permanent workforce to that specific company? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and so that, that the, you know, just it's a very clear question. Should immigration policy be used to meet current labor market needs? I think I, I, I don't 
you know, necessarily want to say yes or no. I'll just, you know, give you what we need to think about in answering that question. In Canada, I think we, we've said, yeah, to some extent we will use immigration, but it won't be our permanent immigration program. It will be our temporary immigration program. So that, that's kind of the raison d'etre, as I understand it, at least of low-skilled streams within our temporary foreign worker program, um, is to meet those current short-term labor market needs. Increasingly, I've written a paper about this recently with a co-author at, at Western University that, you know, that it looks like in Canada, our temporary foreign worker program that's intended to meet current labor market needs is increasingly moving away from sort of the, the program that requires LMIAs or what used to be called LMOs towards this IMP system that, that's more of an open temporary work. That system is increasingly looking like it is filling those, those current labor market needs. But um, so, yeah, there, there is, I think, for sure, I'm not saying that this should be or but there is certainly uh, programs in Canada that are there to meet those current labor market needs, and that's temporary foreign worker programs. Yeah. Now, the question is, is that what you should do? So that one really important consideration here is that when you have a, a what's called a labor market shortage uh, or a labor shortage, you know, meeting that shortage through immigration is, is only one way to address it. And how you address it has consequences. And most importantly, it has distributional consequences. So that means that, you know, whether you address it through immigration or whether you address it through laissez-faire capitalism, where you just let the market adjust and let, you know, workers be scarce and employers compete for scarce workers through bidding up prices, that is bidding up wages. That's another way to deal with it. You, you increase wages at the bottom end of the labor market, thereby reducing inequality. Um, that's another way, for sure, another way to deal with it. So whether you do that approach or whether you fill the labor market needs with new immigrants, temporary foreign workers, has distributional consequences in the sense that there are winners and losers. And it's pretty clear who the winners and losers are. So the, the winners, when you increase it through temporary foreign worker programs, are people that uh, you know, benefit our, our company owners, employers, uh, they, they for sure benefit. It's good for profits. There's no question. There's, I mean, you can see that very clearly. Who advocates hardest for temporary foreign worker, like relaxation of temporary foreign worker uh, restrictions? Corporate Canada. I mean, there's just no question. So they're big winners in this. And everybody knows that that's true. Who are the losers? Well, if you're competing, if you're a low-wage worker competing for a job in those sectors, um, you probably, you know, are not benefiting. There's no question that 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 maybe doesn't put downward pressure on your wages, but it certainly doesn't lead them to increase in the same way that they otherwise would. And so, what we what we're seeing now is, in fact, um, a, another reversal once again in Canada. We we go from tightening access to temporary foreign workers to loosening. Now we're in this wave where we're Loosening Quebec recently has, has changed their policies again. Um, so we struggle with this in Canada to say what, what the right balance there is. And, and yeah, I mean, that, that, that thing that you say about the, the who is negatively impacted, um, the worker themselves, that's especially true if there really is no pathway to permanent residence for those people, you know, if there's really no way for them to regularize their status as a permanent resident if they're in a low-skill job. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's a great, that's, a, that's an issue that's received a lot of attention during this pandemic, this issue of low-skilled or what are often called essential workers that, that um, the perception is have difficulties making transitions to permanent residency. I would really strongly encourage you guys and your listeners to uh, take a look at the study that was released this morning, coincidentally, by Garnet Pico, Feng Hao, 
Eden Crossman um, at Statistics Canada and IRCC, where they document very clearly that transition rates from temporary residency to permanent residency are and have always been higher among low-skilled temporary foreign workers than high-skilled temporary foreign workers, substantially higher. So in Canada, this has always been true that low-skilled temporary foreign workers are more likely to make the transition to permanent residency than high-skilled temporary foreign workers. Uh, that's that's I, don't, I don't know where this idea came from that there weren't pathways for temporary. Are we talking in recent history or just throughout Canada's history? Throughout Canada in the past 20 years. The, the probability of a low-skilled temporary foreign worker making a transition to PR status is higher than for a high-skilled temporary foreign worker. That's it. That was released this morning. I, I'd encourage you to look. Yeah, I have to check it out because I can't think of which programs. That well, there's were all kinds of programs, right? So that's what they go through in the programs. But there's lots of pathways for low-skilled temporary foreign workers, right? There's a PNP. There's family class programs. There's humanitarian class programs. They are making those transitions. Uh, there's no question. It's it, it's in the data. It's very so. Clear. Maybe it's that they're obtaining permanent residence, but not through economic, like not through what we call the economic immigration. Oh, sure. Program. The the transition could be something else. We don't. There are many, as you guys know better than me. There are many yeah, yeah, yeah. pathways. No, and it'd be I guess like this all the accompanying dependents. This is what I think. Um, what I think I find super puzzling is that while the economic strategy might be to prioritize high-skilled workers, uh, what we're saying is that ultimately it's the low-skilled ones who are more motivated or more intent to actually transition to permanent residency. That's, that's so basically it. That's the, econ it. the economics and the policy in terms of who, like in terms of the nation building exercise, who actually wishes to become part of our society in terms of even just global mobility. Like I think, um, you know, I, I just, I think, you know, the, this is something that we heard very much during the Harper government that like, well, you know, the temporary, it's temporary is temporary and permanent is permanent, you know, but I think that when you're talking to the more low skilled or mid skill range person, they are the ones that are really intent that are really going to value that Canadian citizenship that are very, very motivated to set down their roots and really make their investments here in Canada, whereas, you know, and again, I mean, I'm making vast generalizations, but it seems nope, to me that the numbers really bear them out. I think you just nailed it. I think I think that's the big in the data that they have, they're just using administrative data from IRCC, you know, where we aren't, at, I mean, we don't, we have terrible data on preferences. So, I mean, it'd be great if part of the TR application had a question in it, do you intend, or would you like to make a transition in PR? We'd have much better sentence. But <laughs> I, I, I think- Admiral Akbar, sure. it's a trap question. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but at least for the analysis, I think that would shed a lot of light on what you just said, Deanna, which I think my gut tells me without having seen any evidence of this is exactly right. Is that the, oh, I mean, the preference for making that transition is very different between these groups. And if you were to look even toward loss of permanent residency by failure to meet the residency obligation too, I imagine that you would see those are, there's a massive over-representation of the high skilled contingent in those who have failed to meet the residency obligation. Um, 
you know, because it's just better it's business a, opportunities abroad. They do. Yeah, it's I just a different level of commitment. Yeah. Exactly. That's totally it. Um, I just don't, in my own litigation practice, I don't know that I've ever represented somebody who became a permanent resident in a low skilled occupation who then failed to meet the residency obligation. Mm. So in terms of like doing those economics, like I understand the, the rationale behind the human capital model, but I just feel like it kind of bumps up against the kind of the other factors like the kind of nation building components and the like, you know, um, I guess the sort of um, the the labor mechanics of like who actually is doing these jobs. And um, so I just I don't know what the answer is to it, but um, I just feel like it's a much more complicated question. The high skill, low skill distinction is that and like that's obviously how IRCC defines it. Do you see other areas where the knock is used this way to divide people into high skilled, low skilled, or is that just an immigration thing? No, that that's a big deal, right? That's but it's it, it. This is ESDC, not IRCC, yeah. but that, that's a big branch of ESDC where they first uh, are constantly updating the the national occupational classification system. That's that's a big. I mean, that's a lot of human power that goes in, into doing that, and then trying to think about, well, you know, how do you, is it like tax ex- exercise in creating taxonomies that you, you have to categorize people and it's sort of unavoidable. There's, there's, there's lots of reasons why um, we, we need to do this. I mean, just off the top of my head, another area where this becomes important is um, in education policy. If you, if you start now creating uh, what are called concordances or, um, oh, my brain is failing me, like uh, crosswalks between education codes. So every educational program in Canada has a, a, what's called a CFI, CIF code that, you know, classifies educational programs. They map into, through some crosswalk, the the NOC. And so then we have to talk about what education is, is a high skill or low skill? Does this deserve a degree or is this just a diploma? Or So, I mean, there's there's lots of ways that uh, that this this matters and and in IRCC it matters for more than just the temporary foreign worker program it matters for like uh, the various PR programs whether you're in the C and D or versus yeah the, oh no it completely determines it, it's sort uh, of a, economic a, a, it, it, it's 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 sort of unavoidable I think um, the the problem is of course and this is where I'm sympathetic to the criticisms is you know of course skill is a continuum. Uh, and you're kind of forced to have these cutoffs, these, you know, cutoffs that say you're in this category, or this category, you qualify the program or don't. And that there, on, on, there's a gray area in there, of course, where it's, it's a little bit fuzzy about whether or not somebody's really high skill or low skill. The other thing I should say for the sake of the podcast is I think there's a misconception about what high skill is. So the, a, the, B, the B categories include a lot of jobs, occupations. I think most people wouldn't instinctively think about as high skill. This certainly isn't just university educated workers or occupations. Uh, this is, you know, being a, a, a chef in a restaurant, a cook in a restaurant is, is, a, is a high skill occupation according to this classification, so. Yeah, well, I mean, the classifications, once you dig into it, like your heavy duty uh, transporter who's earning say 100,000 in Fort McMurray would be classified as unskilled, whereas your assistant bar manager earning just over minimum wage uh, would be classified as skilled. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess with anything, once you once you try to do that taxonomy of everything, there's going to be weird quirks yes. uh, that appear. And some lawyers I know have suggested, like, why not just make it, if you earn more than X, you can automatically just stay. Or, and this is something we've discussed on the podcast, like, it would seem to me from an economic perspective, and I could be wrong, having no background in economics, but like, it would seem to me like they, we have these targets in immigration, right? They're, they were obsessed with it last year, 401,000 people. Like it drove everything. And yet, and you would hear conversely, like some of the um, people who I follow on Twitter, I think we may follow some of the same people like Ben Rabideau or Steve Saretsky would comment 401,000 permanent, like 401,000 immigrants get ready, housing's about to be blown out of the water. Yet for all these, it seems to be measuring the wrong thing because like the foreign workers, the students, they're living somewhere here. Most of them are working. So is there actually an economic consequence or cost to just those people be, being allowed to stay permanent as opposed to when they first come here? I would have thought that's where the economic tolls or consequences would have been felt. Yeah, so that, that came up in a few discussions uh during the pandemic when there was a lot of talk about this TR to PR pathways. Um, so I'll answer your question and I'll come back to something related to that that, that Deanna mentioned in the previous uh, discussion. So, um, you know, the, the idea is, does providing these TR to PR pathways really matter if these folks are already here? And the answer is yes, because the question is if they if they don't have those pathways, then what do they do? Well, they, they return to wherever it is they came from. And, um, and, and that reduces the population and has exactly the same effect. So, I mean, if, if they all stay, then I, then I agree, providing that pathway is probably the right thing to do. But, you know, if we know that they're all staying past the expiry of their permits, then we've got a much bigger problem, clearly. Um, and incentivizing people to stay beyond the expiry of their permits is probably not what we wanna do by saying, okay, well, you can, you can get a, a, a pathway to PR if you stay beyond the expiry of your your permit. So I, I think, you know, clearly providing those pathways does have implications for the population, for housing demand, and whether people are renting or buying, it, it has implications for housing demand. There's just, there's no question. It, it, it impacts the housing market. Yeah, the other thing, though, is where one, one issue that I feel like in a lot of discussion around these TR to PR pathways, it gets forgotten, is one of the concerns economists have about temporary foreign workers is that they, more than other inflows of immigrants, they, they, there's a reason to believe that they maybe have especially strong sort of put, especially strong downward pressure on wages. Why is that? Well, because these workers are, I mean, indentured labor is, is strong, <laughs> but there's, a, there's a, some, certainly similarities there in the sense that they don't have outside options. And so when you're, you're negotiating with an employer because you, you don't like your wage or you don't like your working conditions and you have zero outside options, you can't go anywhere else, then your bargaining power is pretty low. And so these workers are to some extent more desperate than immigrants with per, permanent residency that can go somewhere else if they're not happy in their current job. Yeah. So that, that really puts downward pressure on wages. But the other thing that happens is, okay, now suppose that you provide sort of this, this prize. We say, okay, if you stay here for a certain amount of time, I don't know what the right amount of time is, a year, there will be this reward of PR status. What does that now do to people's, what we call reservation wages, what economists call reservation wages, or their willingness to accept 
shitty wages and crappy working conditions. It makes it even worse. What if you say, okay, you only have to say six months. Now it's even worse, right? Because I'll take, I'll accept being, you know, I'll accept not being paid at all if I only have to stay here six months to get PR status, right? So that, that creates real opportunity for employers to exploit these workers even more. And if they're only staying here for six months in order to satisfy employers' needs, we need more and more and more. The inflow is going to increase really quickly of these exceptionally desperate workers. Um, and so I just don't see that as being a long-term solution. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I can sing this song a whole bunch. I mean, I think the way that they've run the caregiver programming pretty much from day one has been a massive exercise in creating an exploitative situation because they did it with the TR to PR pathway. The existing pilots for the caregivers are like, we'll take 2,750 per year. And in the meantime, anyone who's being admitted into the country on a work permit is going to be locked into these kind of um, servile conditions uh, with really um, a pretty limited window of opportunity for them to ever make the transition over to permanent residency. Um, and it's this like kind of like stuck pool of people and the way that they're administering those applications, everything like it's just it's and whenever we have proposed that it needs to be something that allows people to apply for permanent residency from the outset, the department has actually answered, well, if that were the case, nobody's going to actually do those jobs um, on admission. So um, that's the problem. But again, it's sort of like you kind of can't have it both ways, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's oh. like, well, yeah, my uh, I get emails and get asked pretty well, somewhat regularly, like, is the reason processing times are slow right now because they need the foreign workers to be working in these jobs to risk getting COVID because no one else is and the government just wants to keep them there. And I don't think that is the case, but it's definitely a sentiment that exists. Yeah. For them to say that, like, it's going to take minimum one year to even meet a first stage decision. Um, and again, like still waiting for my first decision on one of those um, home child care provider pilot applications that program opened in June 2019. Like it's just um, it's like a four state of limbo, but even just kind of like the messaging behind like this is low skilled programming and therefore there are fewer opportunities for permanent residents. And then all of a sudden they issue those TR to PR programs and now they're calling them essential workers. So like the messaging even in, in itself is very, um, it's extremely confusing Mm -hmm. um, because are they knock C and D or are they essential? Like, and so I think it really just, um, you know, there was no attempt to kind of reconcile what the, what the social policy is behind there. So, um, I, I don't know. I just, I found that really, uh, troubling, um, from a kind of out, outside messaging perspective with the department. Mm. Yeah, I, I've struggled throughout this with it. With I've always struggled with the term essential worker. Uh, and as you guys know, with lawyers, this doesn't just show up in immigration policy. This yeah. shows up in industrial relations and many other areas as well. What is an essential worker? I mean, it's impossible to, these binary distinctions are very uh, difficult, impossible essentially. Uh, but, but I think that, you know, I would encourage people to really think through, I mean, the caregivers is a great example of, of the, the policy challenge, right? We say we need these caregivers, okay, um, but 
we and we don't like them being on this temporary status because it creates this precarious employment relationship with employers. We get that. So then we say, okay, well, we want to give them PR pathways. We give them PR pathways, and that has this effect that I, I just described, sort of makes them even more desperate. So then the response to that, and I would even suggest, is PR on arrival. You get that's PR status on arrival. But that's de facto the end of the temporary foreign order. They're not by de, de facto, they're not temporary foreign workers anymore. Now they're, they're, there's a whole new PR program. Okay, that's fine. Then people say, and there's pretty good evidence of this, that when people, immigrants, make that transition from TR to PR, they don't stay in these jobs. So in the agriculture, seasonal agriculture workers, we see this very clearly in the data that the vast majority will, will leave those, those crappy jobs, not surprisingly. Um, so let's think about caregivers. Do they stay in those, those jobs where they live in, for example? No, probably they won't. So that's the response you got is IRC said, well, who's going to do these jobs then? So as an economist, I would take that even one step further and say, well, yeah, who is going to do those jobs? Let's think through this. Let's think through an economic model where you literally shut off the supply of labor to this occupation that we all agree is not really the type of job that most people want. What happens? Well, wages get bid up for one because there's scarce workers willing to do that. So if you want to live in caregiver, you got to pay a lot more. The other thing that happens is you find substitute goods. You find a substitute for a live-in caregiver, which might be you send your kid to a daycare or something else. But markets adjust. Economies are incredibly resilient. <laughs> you know, new innovations are designed. There's all kinds of ways that we adjust. It's not the end of the world. I can assure you that if we shut down the caregiver program, there would be some losers. There's distributional effects. If I'm a high-income person that I employ, I live in caregiver, I'm going to, I'm a loser in that proposition. But um, at least for me and my personal politics, that's not the population I'm most worried about. Yeah. The other mantra that we're, has currently really grown is international students and graduates in Canada make the best immigrants. I think that's been at least five years if not longer, of saying that. Are there actually any studies to, and again, going into how you measure it, I guess, would be wages that confirm this? Yeah, so I, I and there's more than one, but I, I like to think I have one of the more compelling ones. <laughs> okay. We used uh, StatsCan graduate survey, national graduate survey, where what we have are students while they're in school, and then we track them when they graduate, and, and you have international students in that data. And, and without question, Without question, international students um, do outperform foreign educated immigrants with similar types of schooling in similar fields, and they, they very clearly outperform. But they also quite significantly underperform their Canadian born classmates. Um, so their earnings are somewhere in between these two groups. Uh, when you sort of try to compare as much as possible apples to apples, like similarly aged, similar field of study. Um, they are living in a similar city, um, working, and you compare their earnings, then the, the, the former international students fall somewhere in the middle between the foreign educated and the Canadian one. Does so it level the out is, over time? Or like, do you think that's a reflection in part of what you were saying? Like, they have to go into a job that they then might be scared to leave because they'll lose their immigration reference letter? So the, the data we're looking at, these are people that have uh, made that transition to PR. Okay. So we are only comparing permanent residents. So we're looking at the earnings of former international students who are now permanent residents 
to Canadian born to uh, permanent residents that are fo only foreign educated. Um, and, and that you, you asked, is that changing over time? It is. So it does look like that former international student group is not, it's not a huge effect. So I don't want to, I mean, this is where language is a problem because you sometimes say things and people think that the effect is bigger than it is, but there, there, it looks like it's deteriorating relative to uh, both groups. That former international student are looking more and more like the foreign educated and less and less like the Canadian born as their numbers have been increasing. Um, so that looks like it's happening. It's Is not there new. a theory for why that might be occurring? Well, it's just a quality quantity supply trade-off. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the international student stuff that you might find interesting or your listeners might say. I mean, you might wonder why it is that these are students, international students that have been in the same classes, graduated from the same program as these Canadian students, and they're systematically earning quite, quite a bit less. Um, why is that? So what we did is we said, well, let's look at their grades. What if we look within the classroom, not just their overall GPA, but within a classroom, in the same courses, how are they performing? So we got permission from uh, one of Ontario's biggest universities, biggest uh, recruiters of international students. We got all the course level grades going back to the early 2000s, and we crunched all the numbers, and the difference is just as evident in their grades as it is in their earnings. So they're underperforming within these academically as well. Now, then you might ask, well, well, who is it? Is it the so is it the case that the best students, international students, are underperforming the best domestic students? So is the 90th percentile of the grade distribution different? And the answer is no, it's not. It's almost all happening at the bottom end of the distribution. So the worst international students are doing much worse than the worst Canadian students. And so when that tells you is the, the issue is very much about screening, about how you select students. So international students provide high school grades, but those grades are much noisier. And so universities spend a lot of time trying to, you know, convert those grades to an equivalent grade for the domestic students. And that's, that's not easy to do. And so they spend a lot of time investing in, you know, learning about particular universities in India or China, or sorry, high schools in India, the feeder high schools, about which ones you know, produce good students and which ones don't. And uh, the University of Waterloo, in fact, makes those like there's a very intricate system. We even do this with kind it's a hush hush thing. But I mean, they the University of Waterloo, at least the engineering faculty does this with Canadian high schools as well. They make adjustments depending on what Canadian high school your grade is from. Um, so they're doing that with the foreign students and 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 the, and it's it's more bottom line is it's more challenging the foreign students so you're making more sort of false positive admissions poor international students that probably shouldn't have been admitted were admitted and that's that's really pulling down the the average at the bottom end yeah i think that's probably a struggle for a lot of um post secondary institutes in canada because you hear grumblings of like is it harder to get into a Canadian university if you're Canadian than if you're a foreign uh, national. And I've heard that grumbling among some uh, Canadian high school students. Right. So if you think now about the economic objective, we know that raising GDP per capita is very much about getting these really highly skilled, highly talented, maybe the top of the class students. It's remarkable how little we know about what part of the international student distribution we're actually attracting or settling in Canada. So is it that bottom end of the distribution that maybe shouldn't have been admitted to those post-secondary programs to begin with, or is it the top end? And, and that's a question that 
I am now trying to answer because we're trying to get IRCC and StatsCan to approve a linkage of data of all these student data and their grades with the IMDB, the IMDB being all the, the administrative data, landing records and temporary uh, resident records with T1, with tax data. So we can track them and see their earnings. That's the, the next project on the agenda. In terms of the outcome measurements that you're looking at, it's strictly based on income, is that right? Yeah, so um, that for sure is overwhelmingly what immigration researchers, labor economists focus on, and also IRCC. I mean, one other fact that I, I'm a little surprised people don't recognize, a lot of people that are in the immigration world in Canada, is that the CRS, the comprehensive ranking system that we use to cream skim the express entry pool, that ranking system, the, the, the criteria that go into that and the weights on those criteria come directly from an analysis of immigrants' earnings. They're, they're not arbitrarily chosen. The criteria and the weights come from an empirical analysis of what immigrants' earnings are five, 10, 15 years after landing. Um, so we, we've tried to predict, I was part of some of that evaluation initially when the CRS came in, um, we try to, you know, lose, the, the whole game here is the same game that universities are using to select students. You have a set of observables on a CV, let's say, you look at those observables and you discriminate on them and you cream skim. And you, you say, okay, what, which, which candidates have the, the characteristics that look like they're most likely to be successful, or most likely have the highest earnings in 10 to 15 years in Canada? That's, that's all they're doing with the CRS. Which is interesting then, like that there's, and I mean, there's multiple factors that go into it, but they only slightly distinguish between Canadian post-secondary and foreign post-secondary. Yep, so there's a backstory there, Steve. And the, and the backstory is that when they first, the first iteration of the CRS, they deliberately didn't distinguish Canadian and foreign education. So there was no, there were no bonus points for Canadian education. Yeah. And then there was a big push for more international students, giving preference to international students. So they revisited that, whether that was a, so what I mean by, is it the, the, the actual earnings regression, the statistical analysis they were doing, they didn't allow for the possibility that there were different returns to foreign and, and Canadian education. Um, and and they, they went back and redid that as you probably know. And so now there are some bonus points, but the bonus points and how much is to some extent uh, related to, um, to some extent related to the, the earnings differences, the expected earnings differences between foreign and, and Canadian education. Yeah. yeah. The other one they did at the same time was they added points for being francophone. Is there any economic advantage to speaking? Because this program isn't for people like immigrating to Quebec. So is there an actual economic or income advantage to speaking French outside of Quebec or? Is that more of public policy, you know, sneaking in? Yeah, right. So <laughs> this, this is precisely the problem. So the way economists think about public policy, the right way to do it is you first set an objective. The objective is to maximize the earnings of new immigrants. 
then you set a policy instrument that tries to achieve that objective. And you tie your hands. You don't mess around with the instrument to try and achieve some different objective. And I think this is where economists, including me, get our backs up a little bit. And this has happened during this pandemic that there were some bonus points given out for different criteria that that there was no evidence was related to the objective. And so now you, now what you've got, this is, there's actually a term for this. The first Nobel prize winner in uh, economics was Jan Tinbergen. And we call this the Tinbergen rule. And the Tinbergen rule is very simple. It says for every policy objective, there needs to be at least one policy instrument. If you have more policy objectives than instruments, then you've got a problem. You're not gonna do anything properly. And that looks like what's happening with the CRS. And if there's anything that gets my back up, it's, it's this fiddling with the, the CRS to achieve different types of objectives. Because no. then, then we're not doing anything. What I would prefer if, is if there's other objectives like increasing the Francophone population, which is fine. If that's the objective, fine. But then you need to create policy programs that seek to achieve that objective. For every objective, we need at least one instrument or program stream. Yeah. When I took Econ 101, there was this concept of utility, which was, and I still remember the professor standing at the front of the class um, saying that you don't, you know, economics isn't just dollars and cents, there's utility, which I think he said could be measured by like just general happiness is what someone is looking for might not just be strict dollars and cents. It's like, there's this, un. it's hard to quantify, but you're looking for utility. It's kind of like goodwill in accounting where it's not quite, you know, it's, it's not quite clear what it is. <laughs> and economics, the terms seem to be utility. Is that, is that a thing in macroeconomic policy or is that something that you hear about kind of in economics 101? And then after that, it becomes more like, okay, here's the dollars and cents just because utility can be used to economically justify anything? No. Uh, so that, that's a big, that's one of those big questions that you want out forever. So I'm just spinning in my mind here thinking about how to attack that in a, in a succinct way. It's everything. Uh, that, that is not a sort of convenient thing. It's not something you just learn in 101. It is the foundation of, of neoclassical economic theory is that that's how we model human behavior is that humans have these utility functions. These are mathematical functions. Your utility is just some idea of how your economic well-being. I mean, this is this goes back to Adam Smith, right? I mean, the earliest economic thinkers. And, and so what, what we, the pride we take in it, although it's a bit fuzzy, the pride and what attracted me to it as, a, as an undergraduate student is that there's some, there's some sort of rigor in the analysis. We're tying our hands. We're saying, okay, if this is the utility function that individuals are maximizing, and it's a mathematical function, and and there's a constraint, so we're trying to maximize this function subject to some constraint, like a budget, the amount of income you have, then once I do that and I specify the function, now, now I tie my hands and I just maximize that function and the model does all the talking. So you don't end up in, in, in this like circular argument all the time that you're just you know arguing with yourself that you, you can actually make predictions from these models. You can say, okay, what happens now if we change this part of the constraint? What, what, how will people respond? It's not what I want them to do. It's not what I think they should do. 
it's what the model predicts they will do. And so there's some rigor in that. And I think that's what I like about it. I tend not to tend to shy away from. Uh, but do you view it like maybe this is me misunderstanding like utility, but like for an example where they say, like in the US where they say childcare is infant, or a Canadian example where like the prime minister said, you know, grow the economy from the heart. And I heard some people in immigration stakeholders saying, well, like, Parent and grandparents, let's, uh, the parent and grandparent program, let's parents come to Canada and then the parents can go out and work and the children will have a good upbringing and that's promoting happiness. And so that in itself is economic immigration, it's utility. Is that something that you can quantify or how does that factor into? Absolutely. So, okay, these are great questions. (laughs) They're kind of, higher level questions than I expected, but this is great. Um, so yeah, absolutely. This, you know, when you, when you go, you, we, there are, and we can easily build and talk about economic models in which people value that parental care of their grandparents and are willing to pay for, you know, access to that, whether through some super visa or some, you know, there's clear economic value to having a grandparent in the house. For many immigrant families, especially for cultural reasons, that's incredibly valuable. Um, So the problem, you know, if people look at economists and say, well, they're just stupid, they don't recognize that value in society, that's completely wrong. I mean, it's just a a gross caricature. The problem we have as economists is not recognizing that value is there. It's not theoretically modeling that. It's capturing it empirically, quantitatively. So the GDP clearly is, has its limitations. Using GDP to measure the economic well-being of a society has very significant limitations. So the economic value that a grandparent produces in raising a child at home when they're unpaid doesn't get captured anywhere in GDP because they're not paid. That's a problem. That's a limitation of GDP, our measure of GDP. That's, a, that's now you might say, well, why don't they include? Well, because it's not easy to do. Where, where do we observe that child care? It's not reported on income tax forms. This is not simple to do. But if we could, we clearly should be. There's no question. And that's a problem with, you know, I said this before that, you know, family class um, objectives of immigration in Canada have cer- certainly been sort of downsized over the years. Um, and, and I think that I, I tend to be very sympathetic to that view that that might be a problem. And, and it's because we're so obsessed with things like uh, GDP. But, but that's, not, that's not a problem with economic theory. That's just how we measure things that, that, that's a problem. Well, another question that arises for me around the economic modeling is this notion of sort of starting with the, the outcome measurements coming from salary post landing is that it kind of assumes that there's like uh, wage parity between Canadians and newcomers, regardless of like performance or regardless of, um, you know, the, the human capital factors, like that a Canadian similarly situated to a newcomer is going to be given the same wage. And I just fundamentally don't know that I feel certain that that's actually the case. I mean, we know that like pay equity is not, it's not clearly uh, 
established even between men and women, but like, I just don't know between newcomers and, you know, Canadian born people. And this is something that we certainly hear all the time from our clients that a similarly situated person is not earning the same amount. Is that because of like their grades in university, or is that just simply because they don't attract the same salary in the labor market for a whole bunch of socio economic reasons, you know, and so then you work backwards from that model to build the CRS and, and, and it's sort of like then the whole economic model perpetuates that, um, you know, and again, I think for sure it could be then um, reflected also in the grades going in and I understand the, the nuances you've mentioned, but um, I, I still like that one just kind of sits in my brain that like, I just wonder about the truth of that initial proposition. Mm. Yeah, so uh, that is a, a really important question that there's been a lot of research on in, in Canadian, by Canadian labor economists and other, other uh, disciplines as well. So I think that the really important thing uh, to recognize is that when these comparisons are made, the right way you want to do it is you don't want to take an immigrant who's just arrived and compare them to just any old Canadian. You want to compare apples to apples as much as possible. So the right comparison, at least when I do my analysis, is you compare this new arrived immigrant to another new labor market entrant, a Canadian-born new labor market entrant, right? Because there is a penalty. You're right. When you're first entering the labor market, it takes time to find the jobs, to work through a promotion ladder in your workplace. So it takes time. So you want to compare the new immigrant, who will tend to be older than the other new labor market entrants, but that's the comparison. It's the years of work experience that you wanna make sure are the same, okay? When we do that, what we find is that immigrants tend to earn less. Then the question becomes, is that something about the immigrants and their skills, or is it something about the integration of immigrants? Is it something about labor markets and the recognition of immigrant skills? Is it discrimination? Now, over the, the answer to that is, of course, it's a bit of both. So that's like anybody who tells you it's all one or all the other is completely out for lunch. It's clearly a bit of both. The question yeah. is how much is it one or the other? That's the important thing. And my reading the evidence, trying to be as objective as possible, is that it's overwhelmingly something about the immigrants and their skills. And that's not a comfortable result. That's not maybe what I would want to be true, but I can't avoid that result. And so they, where do I get that from? I think the most credible evidence is where we look at immigrants, we try to objectively measure their skills. So one of the most interesting sources of data on this are the OECD adult literacy skills surveys that have been done for many years. There's something called the PIAC and before that, the IELTS, where these are objective tests of immigrants' literacy skills and Canadians, everybody in the population. They're measuring adults' literacy skills in the population. When you look at those literacy skills as they're measured in that data and, and related to earnings, you see these hugely significant relationships. They matter a lot, or they're certainly highly related to how well people perform in the labor market. They do well on these tests. What you also see, though, is that the return to these skills, that is, if I have a one standard deviation higher adult literacy test score, how much higher do I expect my earnings to be? That's like the return to these skills. That return is identical for immigrants and Canadian-born workers. That wouldn't be true if there was a lot of discrimination. If we didn't recognize immigrant skills. The return is the same. You can explain virtually all of the lower earnings because the test scores are lower for immigrants. 
And that matches what, I, what we found in the university grades data. Um, and a lot of this, I would guess, although it's hard to know, parse it all out, but I would guess a lot of it is not cognitive skills. I mean, clearly not. What is reflecting is they have to do these tests in a foreign language. And that makes it a lot harder. But the reality is when they go to a workplace in Canada, they also have to operate in a foreign language. And so that's also reflected in those earnings. And so language is a huge part of all of this. And it also explains why on the CRS, there's a lot of weight put on language and why we've over the years put a lot more emphasis on pre-migration mandatory language testing. It's, it's just a very, very important part of, I mean, I know this, I know this, we have, um, I work with a lot of international students. My university has a lot of international students and my graduate students are almost all international students, mostly from China over the years. And, but I've had some Canadian born PhD students that I've supervised as well. On average, probably it's true that the, the foreign students are, have been slightly higher cognitive ability. If you just give them a straight math test, they're gonna outperform. But working with those students has been way harder. And a huge part of that is that I don't speak Mandarin. If I did, it would have been way easier. But the communication is important for workplace productivity. There's just no getting around that. And so that's a challenge we have. Yeah, there's also the, um, I've often like, when for immigrants of the same skill, like even just in differences in resume or what's the word I'm looking for? Fitting into the bro culture almost. I don't know, I'm, I'm like not finding the word that I want, but there's a personality and just a, this is how things work in, um, North America, like in terms of resumes, typically, although this seems to be changing, but resumes would be on white paper, whereas I've seen from certain countries, blue paper seems to be the preference and there'll be a photo in the top right. And I think that that also hinders mm. uh, just understanding the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, integration is, is uh, sort of multidimensional. Um, and I think to some extent there's responsibility. I mean, we can do more as employers to aid in that. I think there's there's some responsibility for employers as well. I mean, that mm -hmm. you know, I, I just gave you the argument, Deanna, why I tend to think that the sort of immigrant skills are important, but there's no question there's discrimination that plays a part too. So they're the most compelling evidence on that side are these audit studies that have been done. Phil Oriopolis at U of T in particular has done them where they send out mock resumes. Uh, where everything on the resume is the same, except you just change the name. And, and that shows up pretty clearly. Now, how that plays out in wages is, is really hard. I mean, it's entirely possible that you get those results on callback rates on these fake resumes without it having any impact on wages if, if immigrants are just working for employers that don't discriminate. But um, it's hard to believe it doesn't play out on wages to some yeah, extent. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, they're, they're a good example of what human resources departments can do is they, they clearly, every human resources department in Canada should be masking the names on CVs before they process them. Um, I will say that as somebody with a funny sounding name myself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's some fascinating stuff, that's for sure. It's, uh, well, if you had one piece of economic policy advice to like someone who's crafting, say, 
The next, actually, that would be, is there something the CRS is missing that should be in there or something great question. that's heavily weighted that yeah. should be lightly weighted? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. I, I do know, I, I do hear some rumblings once in a while about what the discussions are at IRCC and and that is something that, that certainly is uh, being discussed these days is whether the CRS needs to be rethought and uh, whether maybe other criteria should be in there, um, which is possible. Um, he, here's an uncomfortable result that people don't like to talk about, especially within RCC, I imagine, is those regressions I told you about where you sort of are taking all these criteria, how much work experience you have, whether you have some, how much education and so on, and whether or not it can predict future earnings in Canada, the R squared statistic in those regressions, that is the percentage of all the variation in earnings that it can explain, the CRS points can explain, it's about 13%. So the vast majority of the variation, what makes some people successful in Canada and other people's not, is to do, has to do with things that aren't in the CRS, right? And that's a bit uncomfortable because to some extent we may be putting too much weight on this then. So then the question is, can you do better? Well, surely you can do better. If you want to do better, I'll tell you one thing you put in there that would, and you mentioned this earlier, Steve, you brought this up, is you put in earnings. If increasingly we're moving towards a two-step immigration program and we have what the earnings of these immigrant, these applicants are in Canada, they're earning in Canada, then why don't we use that? I mean, that's the, strong, yeah. the strongest that's how, predictor uh, of future British earnings Columbia, or past earnings. A lot of the provincial nomination programs. Ontario, it's a, earnings like uh, are a pretty minor factor. But in British Columbia, out of, I think, our ranking system is 200 points. You typically need about, I don't know, before the pandemic, it was hovering around, let's just say, 95 to 100. And wage can get you max 50 points. So if you have a... Um, and then kind of just qualifying for the program in of itself will normally get you about 20-ish points. So if you have a job that pays, say, over 100000 it's almost a certainty that you'll qualify, and wage is the most important factor. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So I think there is some talk about the federal program moving towards that. The other thing you can do for those that don't have earnings, that don't have like a don't get a postgraduate work permit or don't get a job is to look at grades. I mean, we're gonna see when we get, hopefully we get those data and, and, and we can see, but um, certainly, you know, if I want, if my objective was to maximize GDP per capita and I was leaning heavily on international students as a source of new immigrants, I'm pretty sure I would want to cream skim the classes. I want to want to get the best of the best in those yeah. classes. But then you'd That's have, like you were saying, that we'd have to be A-tipping the secret stuff that IRCC has to which schools they think are inflating grades and like... So there's no discrimination across schools? Every, no matter what school you graduate from, even though it's very different competitiveness to get into these programs, we treat them all the same. Um, yeah. You know, some of the most interesting stats I've seen are, are what happens to, you know, as I said, University of Waterloo is, is you more than, here's an interesting stat, most people don't know, uh, is, um, you know, the math faculty of the University of Waterloo is incredibly competitive. Uh, the grades to get in there are just insane. More than 50, and so when they select their students, they pay no attention to whether these are foreign. I, and I genuinely know that because they pay no attention to whether they're foreign or domestic. 
they they take the foreign students grades they they have a system for making them equivalent and then they put them all in the bin they choose a cutoff depending on how many slots they have and everybody with a grade above that gets in and so what's happened over time when you use that approach and you get more and more foreign applications and really smart students is that more than 50% of the incoming students now are foreign students. So more than 50% of the University of Waterloo's math grads are foreign students, many of them in the computer science program. What happens to those students when they leave? This, if you wanna talk about top, top talent, this is where they are. Anecdotally, because we don't have good data, is that the vast, I've heard 80% go to the US. Yeah. Mostly the Silicon Valley. If you want to leverage immigration to boost GDP per capita, that's where the solution is. That, that's what you got to do. You got to find a way, whether that means, for example, having scholarships or what about the fact that these students are paid ridiculously higher tuition fees? And the Canadian born student who also goes to Silicon Valley right after graduation always gets a low tuition, but the one who stays in Canada has to pay these high, and they pay taxes for the rest of their lives in Canada, but they pay these crazy tuition fees. Why not waive the tuition fees? Have a system that says, okay, if you settle in Canada for long enough, we'll have a system that those tuition premiums you paid are, 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 are um, forgiven somehow. Or I think there are policy levers that we can use. But it still says to me, like, I mean, if even if we were trying to re recruit and like attract and recruit those uh, those graduates for permanent residency, are they going to stay? Like, do they have that same sense of the value of permanent residency in Canada? And do they have that sort of, do they have actual labor market attachment? Or are they going to use the permanent residency and then go off and peddle it somewhere else where they can earn more money on the, on the dollar? Like, can Canada actually be competitive with, um, you know, with global uh, salaries being offered elsewhere once yeah. they have that education. You're, you're right, Dan. It's This is a, actually more of a pathway than most people, I think, realize that Canada is very much a stepping stone for many immigrants. There's a lot of onward migration from of international students to the U.S. And I, I suspect my prior belief is that these are really the top talent. These are the real yeah. successful students that are doing that. And you're right. And you know, Deanna, of course, as you know, this is not something new. Uh, you know, like the, the brain drain issue for Canada is, it's not just about immigrants, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a serious challenge, but of course we have to do what we can to try as much as possible to address that challenge. Well, that's where like the, re like the residency obligation also becomes an issue because there isn't a great way, like Canada doesn't really, if somebody graduates here, uh, let's say becomes a permanent resident and then goes to work in Silicon Valley for three to four years and wants to come back, they aren't welcomed back as, oh, great, bring your talents here. And well, exactly. you, you left us, we're, uh, we're hurt. We're taking away your status yeah, now. That doesn't make any right. sense. Does retention, like, does the, like whether or not somebody actually remains in Canada, does this ever factor into any of the economic theory around um, around Canada's migration policy? So, like, who stays? I mean, it certainly goes into the theory, um, so that matters a lot for the impact of immigration on GDP per capita. Whether you know the highest earners or the lowest earners are the ones who are staying. Um, so into the theory for sure, but empirically in Canada, so I have a co-author that I've worked with um, doing comparative analysis with Australia. Australia keeps really good records of out-migration. Every exit from the country is tracked and there's administrative records. We don't do that in Canada. 
So we have very, very poor data on out-migration. There are some studies that have been done over the years to try and analyze that, but it's sort of very indirect. It's kind of like a residual that you're trying, you're, you're following these cohorts. So what you do basically, it's not that complicated, is you look at a cohort and the composition of cohort of new arrivals, and then you track that cohort across census files and see how it's changing. And it's changing because of two things. These people are dying or they're leaving. And the death rates are pretty low. So we think it's pretty much all out migration that's happening. Yeah. So if, though, if their earnings are falling or increasing, you sort of get at that, what, what's happening, who it is that's leaving. But we just don't, we don't measure exits. When, when a migrant leaves Canada, there's no real paperwork that, that tracks them. Yeah. It just strikes me that that's a real, um, that not being factored in really skews the, the policy decisions being made because like I know that a lot of my clients by the time that they get landed they're on their way out already they're done you know like um and so so I can if you're interested I can certainly point to the best paper we have in Canada yeah definitely send Um, us these papers because we can uh, yeah for sure yeah Um, so the best paper in Canada suggests in the U.S. that out migration um is really important for change how do I say this so when you track I don't know how much you want to get into the details of these things, but you get a bit nerdy. But when you track these cohorts of immigrants over time with, with this longitudinal data, you're not following individual people. You're following these groups because you don't see in the data the same individuals. There's like no idea. You don't have their SIN numbers that you can follow individuals. And so the question is, when their earnings are changing over time, how much of it is that their individual people earning are changing, improving or getting worse, usually improving? And how much of it is the composition of that cohort is changing over time? And so there's some research that tries to do that. In the U.S., it turns out a big part of the increase over time is um, composition, that the worst immigrants are leaving. And so the, the kind of the ones who always had lower earnings are leaving. And so that's pulling it up. In Canada, it looks like that doesn't matter that much. The out-migration looks like it's not related in, the, in as much of a systematic way to earnings. Um, so that's a paper by, by Garnet Pico and, uh, oh, now I forget, the guy that went to South Africa. Sorry, I forgot his name. Yeah. Um, last question for me, I completely forgot that I'd been asked by a buddy to ask you is, uh, is there any truth? So his, he has this theory that, okay, Canada has made the decision to uh, for climate change reasons, reduce its reliance on natural resource. For First Nations reconciliation reasons, kind of reduce reliance on other resources. And all that's becoming left for Canada is immigration propping up housing. And is that a sense that people are starting to get, like that Canada is because of uh, you know reasons to pull back from natural resources? having to rely on immigrants propping up housing. Yeah, um, I, I don't really know how to, how to respond to that. I mean, the, all I can say is that for sure, immigration does impact the housing market. And there are, dist- as I've, I said about other things, there are distributional yeah. effects. There are winners and losers in that effect, right? Yeah. So there are those in the market and you, you could think the sellers the ones on the seller side of the market tend to benefit from high levels of immigration there. And the ones on the buyer side, not so much. Um, but is that part of the policy agenda, the rationale behind the policy? I, I, I'm skeptical. But having said that, 
I do still struggle with understanding what is happening with the current policy shift away from an emphasis on skilled immigration, at least economic policy shift, away from skilled immigration towards population maximization. As you said, you know, there was a target in 2021 and the, the government clearly went after to try and reach that target at all costs. There's been a, we're seeing now a big price for doing that. Um, a big price in terms of future skilled immigration. Um, I, I worry about what's happening in the express entry pool. I've been tracking that pretty closely. And it's, it's, you know, like I worry about potential high skilled immigrants, top talent leaving to go elsewhere because there's just no chance they're going to get an invitation. I think that's a serious problem. Um, so it made no sense to me that in 2021, the government had to hit this floor. I, I worry about these targets. I think the, the target should be about quality. It shouldn't be about quantity. Um, and, and so, yeah, what, what lot, what's behind that target? Why is the government so determined to hit these high targets? I honestly don't know. I don't know what the rationale there, what the logic is. I really don't. Well said. I mean, it was very kind of, I mean, the, the bulletins that we've all been seeing that are being posted on Twitter and such about how that TR to PR cohort is kind of being carved out of what we had expected to come out of express entry and sort of uh, what that's going to mean for, for next year, because, uh, you know, everyone's anticipating that what they have in the backlog now is enough to, to satisfy the quota for next year. And so does that mean that essentially express entry is on hold until the mm -hmm. middle of the year when anybody landed is going to be landed in 2023? So these are the questions, like, as you said, but just to kind of, uh, to kind of paint that out, because I don't think we've actually sort of uh, run that through on the podcast yet, but uh, I yeah. think that that's what's on the top of all of our minds right now. Yeah, no. So Steve, that that <coughs> I, I follow Steve religiously. <laughs> yeah, and oh, he's really good. Uh, at this. There's really great stuff that he's putting out, but it really helps you sometimes to see this on the inside. And um, I mean, the whole I have to call it spin of of this idea that it was somehow innovative to transition these TRs with low CR scores to PR status. I, for people who followed the whole system and, and how that system has evolved, we all know, of course, there's nothing innovative about that. That could have always yeah. been done, but yeah, we didn't right. do it for yeah. a reason because these immigrants tend to flounder and really struggle. Um, yeah. We know that Canada has had massive problems with immigrant integration. Um, and that's what we spent the last 20 years trying to address and this is not innovative. <laughs> it's like absurd. Um, so not to I, mention I, that those those applications are still processing, and a lot of them, in my experience, in the last few weeks at least, are are running aground even in the processing phases, where mm -hmm. like people are getting rejections or they're getting their applications okay. bounced because they're being told there's some technical problem with their right. application. So wow. um, until they're landed, they're not landed. I don't think they're going to hit that quota or anywhere near it. Certainly not with the caregiver pilots that they capped out and their returning mm -hmm. stuff. I think that now of that group that they, that 2750 that they cut off after that, I think they're going to bounce like a good chunk of that number just saying, you know, you didn't do your work history accurately. So I'm sure it's going to be the same. I'm not sure. I suspect it's going to be the yeah. same with these TR to PRs, you know, they're looking at them with such a, uh, such a, um, you know, a very 
uh, precise kind of completeness screening lens that like, I just don't know that they'll even all be approved. So right. just to add right. that piece. To yeah. It, yeah. Know. That's one way to reduce processing times. It's just bounce them all. Um, yeah, no, it, I mean, uh, I, it's very, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, I do think there's this tension with like, once someone's a foreign worker, and I mean, you touched on this also, like there may not be economic reasons for transitioning to permanent residence, but all of a sudden they're here. And the longer they're here, the more they lay down roots, the more they may likely yeah. have family. Um, yeah. And the family reunification stream is weird cutoffs where you may not have lived together for a full year yet. And there's all these individual factors that come in that the government has to balance to maximize that utility. Yes. <laughs> no, that, that's absolutely. Yeah. So here, coming back to that very quickly, Steve, you're right, maximize the utility. But here's the other problem with economic class immigration is the utility, and you see this sometimes even in some of the papers that are written by economists, the utility function, when we talk about a country's utility function, it's called a social welfare function. And in the models we have, we have these social welfare functions. The that, so in those social welfare functions, the question is, do you include the immigrants, the, the prospective immigrants themselves? And in Canada, at least in the economic class, we don't even think about that, what the gain to immigrants mm. are. And even in our humanitarian class programs, we don't. So that, that you're, you're absolutely right. My problem with Canada's immigration discourse is we don't talk enough about what we're trying to achieve. What right. are the objectives? If you look in the IRPA, it's a mess. Section three in IRPA has a list of, of objectives. Yeah, exactly. It's completely vacuous. It, it, like I read this and think, what? It's 30 okay. priorities. Yeah, let, let, let's be clear. And for every objective, let's have a measurable. How would we measure? It's like any strategic planning exercise. When you do strategic planning, you say, okay, what are we trying to achieve? How are we going to measure whether we're achieving this? And what are the instruments, the levers we're going to pull to try and, and reach these objectives? Right. That's, we, we do that really poorly in Canada. And, right, and for sure. What's happening well, even over just, time is everything is about economics. And it's ridiculous because there's so much even, immigration. Even just talking about like in a workplace setting, like when an employer onboards somebody, they have expended resources. So the idea of then having them replace that employee, that feels like a big oomph that they're going to have to go through. So nobody wants to do that. So they want to retain yeah. that employee. So there's yeah. no business is that a good financial decision for that company? Well, I don't know. That's that's something altogether different. But again, there's these other factors that now or you're a program, just yeah, like, can just exist for the sake of existing. Like that out of status construction worker program for people in Toronto only. And I tweeted this that like there was the memo that okay, they didn't get enough applicants. So okay, well then we'll remove the requirement that they had to have paid tax, and we'll remove the requirement that. They have a language to try to get more applicants and you start wondering what's the point of this like what are we actually <laughs> we try to achieve like, what, are we, what, doing? what are we doing here like yeah so yeah. trevor Toon often says like with any policy you should always ask yourself what problem is this policy trying to solve and and it's the same with immigration problem with these programs what objective are we trying to to meet here yeah, this t definitely feels like the last year in terms of, I mean, not to say that it was like all perfect as well, but policy direction from the department mm -hmm. over the course of the last year has been a dog's breakfast, you know, like we have no idea where they're going or why. Yep. And so, um, yeah, I just like, I don't even know where to look.
Um, so I think that you said it though, just in terms of like one cohesive plan and um, any kind of clarity around what the direction was and why. Um, but also I think I wanna sort of rem remember that, you know, the whole idea around, you know, temporary is temporary and permanent is permanent when that sort of, that was the like Jason Kenney kind of mantra that everyone was talking about, like the creation of this underclass and that happened in Europe and that's not good. Like you create this entire substratum of the society who's doing all this work and that's not really great that they then have to leave and that expectation that you're like part of the society, but not, you know, like that, um, you know, and again, like, so it's like, oh, we're sorry. So we're going to let a certain amount of you stay, but not the rest. And under these circumstances, like, again, it just, it feels so random and so haphazard. And I feel like there's just this genuine general discontent, like, um, uh, and, and that's, it feels like where we are right now. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree with you more than ever. And I've been following immigration policy for 20 years and, and more than ever, I just feel like you know, the, the other thing that, yeah, the, 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 the direction, the policy direction and what the objectives are is, is very muddy. But the other piece that, that surprises me is how little you hear from any opposition. I, I, I never hear any criticism from the opposition politically. And I wonder why that is. But I think more than ever, they're completely silent. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm just thinking back to the last, like to Aaron O'Toole, at least for... Yeah. The accusations of liberal light um, and just tensions within the conservatives over it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, this has been uh, really interesting. I think it's it. Uh, I think the audience will be glad to hear something beyond just strict immigration law and a lot of uh, questions that people sent in. I think we answered all of them. So great questions. Uh, I, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, this was uh, this was fun. We'll have to do it again for sure. Anytime, Steve. More than happy to do it.